Welcome. Please accept Jim and John's invitation to join them as they once again ask each other, what do you think about? Hey, Jimmy, what do you think about all kinds of different little topics? I have all kinds of different little thoughts about all kinds of different little topics. Can you expound? Well, you see, I've had these various little sort of related topics that I wanted to see what your take was, but none of them could really fill up a full 30 minutes on their own. So I'm just going to lump them all together in an episode and I'm calling it the grab bag. All right, by me. But just keep your grabbing hands on your own bag, brother. You bet you, brother. But uh, one of these things that I've always liked and thought was pretty damn strange, actually, were the Nazca lines. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Yeah. I think the first time I heard about them was from Eric von Deineken's Chariots of the Gods. Uh, they're like odd-shaped lines in the Nazca Desert. You really need to fly over them, though, to appreciate them. Or see them via aerial photography. Yeah. Uh, for the uninitiated out there, the Nazca lines are found in the Nazca Valley in Peru. It's a high-altitude desert. In 1926, a guy named Taribo Meja Hespi was hiking in the hills around this valley. That's about what was his name? I have no idea, really. But it was Mr. Hesby, or is it Zazby? What do you think? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's if for anybody who actually speaks real Spanish, it's X E S S P E. But anyway, he was hiking around the hills around this valley, about 250 miles south of Lima. He got to a high spot on his hike, you know, and he could see something really incredible. He saw these massive drawings of creatures and these enormous lines on the ground of the valley below. Technically, these are known as geoglyphs. These drawings are huge and they're varied. For instance, there's a drawing that is referred to as the pelican. And this drawing is over 900 feet long. That's uh, about 280 meters for the more civilized folks. And that's honestly very impressive to me. Why do you say referred to as the pelican? Uh, because it really doesn't look like a pelican to me. I mean, it's got wings and it's got an odd looking head, but I myself never would have connected it to a pelican. But to be fair, I have had no experience with trying to draw things that are three football fields long. So perhaps mine would look worse. But in any case, there are other large-scale drawings there, too. There are plants and trees and other animals. I particularly like the spider and the monkey myself. Yeah, those two shapes are easily discernible as a spider and a monkey. Uh, I like the spaceport landing strip myself. Mm -hmm. So, Jimmy, do you have any thoughts on why people would have put all this effort into creating drawings on this scale? To provide a spaceport landing strip for ancient extraterrestrial astronauts visiting Earth, of course. Well, there are several schools of thought on the subject. 
1941, an American archaeologist named Paul Kosak put forth the idea that it was used for astrological alignments. You know, like solstices. Sort of like a giant calendar. Fuck that. It's a spaceport for ancient extraterrestrial astronauts visiting Earth. Well, his research was followed up later by a German archaeologist named Maria Reichi, who largely agreed with his opinion that it was an astronomical clock of some kind. But, as things go, this opinion is no longer the dominant theory on the purpose of the site. In 1968, an astronomer named Gerald Hawkins, using a computer, found out that there were way more lines and shapes that didn't correspond to any astrological features than lines that did. According to Mr. Hawkins, there is no alignment that couldn't be explained by random chance. In other words, if you took a handful of sticks, threw them up in the air, some of these might align with astrological features accidentally. Yeah, right. And uh, I believe the current in vogue answer is that the lines and shapes are related to weather patterns and sources of water. Uh, you know, people living in a desert, which is what the Nazca Valley is, would have needed a way to record this information. Yeah, but my favorite interpretation, though, it's the one you proposed. And it originally came from my mom's favorite proponent of the ancient astronaut theory, Eric von Daniken. You know, like you said, he wrote Chariots of the Gods and a bunch of other books related to the notion that all the gods and angels and such appearing in ancient religious texts were, in fact, alien astronauts. Anyway, he put forth the idea that the lines and markings were all done to support alien landings like an airport is today. Read those books. Well, most of them. Well, of course, this is the idea that the popular press has taken and run away with. All over popular media, you'll see stories about how the lines couldn't possibly be anything else. Do you have any final thoughts on the Nazca lines, Jim? Final word? It's a spaceport for ancient extraterrestrial astronauts visiting Earth. Well, in any case, it is very interesting, isn't it? But along the same lines... Get it? Lines? Ah! Kill me! Are the statues of large heads... On Easter Island. Ah, yes. The, uh, the Moai. Yeah, and I have always wondered about these things, too. Uh, just some, for some facts and background here, Easter Island is an island about 2,300 miles west of Chile in the Pacific Ocean. And it is not a huge island. It's about 63 square miles, around 165 square kilometers. So to put this in perspective for folks, Cincinnati is about 79 square miles, and Columbus is a whopping 223 square miles. Woohoo! Yeah, so the entire island is about the size of a major city. But what's weird about this, though, is there are hundreds and hundreds of statues of people with enormous heads placed all around the edges of the island. Yeah. As I mentioned, these statues are called the the Moai, and they're certainly odd-looking. Most are about 13 feet tall, around four meters. 
And uh, the sizes vary somewhat, you know, from statue to statue. There was one that was 33 feet tall. And uh, in the quarry where they actually carved these things out, you can find an unfinished one that's over 80 feet tall. And I guess the workers finally just said, fuck it when they got that big yeah probably did actually but it's odd to me too that uh, all these moai have complete bodies right that's not what i learned when i was a kid we always talked about the heads on easter island right and we had pictures of them right it's just heads right they are complete humanoid figures with only their heads above ground. They have carved bodies that are buried beneath the soil. That's crazy, right? I mean, you want to talk about extra work? I mean, that just seems seems insane to me. But so the actual history of these statues and who built them, that's been lost to the sands of time. But an archaeologist named Joanne Van Tilburg has put some effort into studying the Moai. And she's counted that there are 887 moai on the island, but they were not the only carved items on the island. There are also ahu, or sacred platforms. The moai were supposed to sit on these, much like, you know, we have modern art sitting on a plinth. Mm -hmm. And the native people there also made pukau, or like little caps or hats for the statues, They've been described as top knots, or maybe they're headdresses or, you know, funky hair. Yeah, and these things had to be a bitch to move around. Uh, they're carved from volcanic ash and weigh, like, you know, 12 or 13 tons. That big one, the 33-foot-tall one I mentioned earlier, it weighed over 80 tons. So, along with uh, what was the purpose of the Moai, we also have the mystery of exactly how they moved these things around and positioned them all over the fucking island. You know, they should have built a spaceport for ancient extraterrestrial astronauts visiting Earth so they could help. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly a massive undertaking. Now, according to Joanne Van Tilburg, the lady who's been doing all this research, only 288 of the Moai actually made it to their resting spots on Anahu. There are 397 of the things still sitting in the quarry waiting to be delivered to wherever they were supposed to go. And if you wander the island you'll find 92 of them lying beside the roads leading from the quarry, as though they were just abandoned and never delivered. And then there are another hundred that you can just find in various spots on the island. The island is inhabited by a Polynesian people called the Rapa Nui. Uh, right now, there are about 3,000 of these folks still living there. Mm-hmm. And according to their ancient legends, the Moai weren't delivered to their locations by people. 
The Moai walked there of their own accord. But the bigger question is, where did they walk from? That volcanic rock quarry? Riley? That's the real mystery, John. From whence did they saunter? That's a good question, but it would certainly make it easier to deliver the goods if it could simply walk there. Now, of course, my mom's favorite author again, Mr. Eric Von Daniken, has an opinion on the Moai. In his 1970 book titled Return to the Stars, he put forth the notion that ancient astronauts got stranded on Easter Island and that they made the Moai. For what purpose? Eh, he doesn't really say. Well, you gotta fill the time until the spaceship is fixed or the rescue crew arrives, right? Yeah, I guess so. But lastly, to round out our conversation about great big weird things, I'd like to talk about crop circles. Round out crop circles. Yeah, I see what you did there. You, sir, are a wit. As my grandpa would have said, I'm a half-wit. But crop circles are essentially uh, drawings or artwork or something like that that appears suddenly, overnight, in fields of crops. Um, They're made visible by a flattening of the crop, which is usually a a grain of some sort. And these flattened plants stand, stand out as kind of a negative image in the field of the otherwise upright plants. They were first reported in a newspaper by a farmer in Queensland, Australia, in 1966. That farmer saw a flying saucer rise up from a marsh near his home and fly away. He went to investigate the area, as one is wont to do, and he found a few circular flat spots in a reedy area of the marsh. He contacted someone. It's unclear exactly who he contacted, though. And the local UFO investigators decided that these flat spots were caused by the landing of a UFO in the field. Wait a minute. Aren't crop circles all poppycock? Weren't there... I mean, people have come forward and said that they're the ones who made them. Sure. Some people have admitted to making crop circles. But here's the odd thing, though. There are, in fact, older historical reports of crop circles. Although not by that name, a guy named Colin Andrews coined that term for the phenomenon in a book he co-authored with Pat Delgado entitled Circular Evidence, A Detailed Investigation of the Flattened Swirled Crops. But if I had to go around saying flattened swirled crops all the time, I too would look for a better name. Crop Circle seems to fit the bill nicely. But anyway, in, 19, in 1888, Sorry, in 1888, a guy named John Rad Capron wrote a letter to the editor of the journal Nature. In this letter, he detailed how circular flattened spots had suddenly appeared in a field. In 1932, an archaeologist named E.C. Kerwin reported finding four circles in a barley field. He had no explanation for it. And there are other reports, too. If anyone is interested, Google is your friend. Well, in 1991, 
two guys named Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley came forward and made the claim that they were responsible for creating over 200 crop circles and that they had started making them in 1978. They said they were easy to make and all they used were a wooden plank, some rope, and a wire guide to help them stay straight and aligned with the pattern. To prove their claim, they made one in front of some reporters. The reporters then had the circle investigated by Pat Delgado, the co-author of that book you just mentioned. And uh, he declared it was an authentic circle made by a UFO. He was probably pretty embarrassed uh, when it was revealed to be a hoax. Well, as a counterpoint, I'd just like to point out that your refutation is actually a logical fallacy. Just because some crop circles are human-made doesn't mean all crop circles are human-made, even if it is the vast majority of them. But, as is so often the case, there's a group of people, I guess they're crop circle fans, that are called croppies, who reject the notion that all crop circles are made by humans. They believe the circles are made by UFOs, since you can only really see the pattern from the sky. They are mysterious messages from the aliens to humankind. Because humans don't have flying machines too, right? It, what kind of messages could they be? I mean, if you took the time to travel here from wherever the fuck, I would think you'd have a more sophisticated plan for communicating with a technological society than rolling around in a wheat field and making geometrical designs, no matter how intricate they might be. Yeah, it's unclear at best. I mean, the croppies all claim it's a warning to humanity to change our ways. And it's on the hot topic of the moment. In the 1970s and 80s, when we were becoming the fine men we are today, Jimmy, it was a warning about nuclear weapons. Nowadays, it's a warning about global warming and climate change. I will go on record, though, saying that a crop circle is probably the absolute worst method of sending a message to people that I can think of. I concur. You know, and I've also heard that they're created, possibly created, naturally by plasmas or weird weather events like low-energy, localized tornadoes or something like that? Yeah, if, I mean, I find that one harder to believe, though, because you don't get straight lines and stuff, right? Yeah. So, the other thing they, that the crop circles tend to exhibit is uh, bilateral symmetry or multilateral symmetry. So, like, there'll be, like, a swirly pattern that's reflected in a swirly pattern or, like, a starfish where the pattern is repeated on the five limbs and you know that's not going to happen naturally so that's in my opinion that's got to be a bunch of guys with a with a plank and a rope but they are pretty cool yeah and then lastly jimmy did you ever hear of a guy named frederick valentich can't say that i have well there's not a lot of detail about this guy other than the story i'm about to relate enlighten me 
Well, on October 21st, 1978, a young pilot named Frederick Valentich took off from a small airport in a suburb of Melbourne, Australia, on a flight to King Island, which was about 125 miles away. King's Island's in Cincinnati. Yeah, King Island is a little island in the bay there. Uh, so far, his story doesn't sound too unusual. Well, I guess not. The weird part is what follows. About 45 minutes after taking off, he radios air traffic control in Melbourne to report that an unidentified aircraft was following him. The air traffic controller, a guy named Steve Roby, told him there are no other aircraft in that area. In a recording of the radio traffic, you can hear Mr. Valentich describe what he's seeing. I quote, It has four bright lights. It seems to me like landing lights. It's just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. It's approaching right now from due east toward me. It seems to me like he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times at a time at speeds I could not identify. And then after several minutes of conversation with the air traffic controller, he was heard to say, That strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. It is hovering, and it is not an aircraft. Immediately after that, there are approximately 17 seconds of the sounds of scraping metal. He never said another word. The air traffic controller immediately dispatched a search for the presumably crashed air crane. After a four-day search, nothing was found. Not the airplane or his body. In May of 1982, which is nearly four years later, the Australian Bureau of Air Safety closed the case, saying it was presumed fatal. A researcher named Keith Basterfield discovered the official file on the investigation in 2004. There's a 315-page file that reaches no conclusions. Mr. Basterfield told the Adelaide Advertiser, The only thing we can say for sure is that the plane and the pilot disappeared while he was describing a UFO, which is one of those things that makes people wonder. Now here's an additional creepy fact. A plumber named Roy Manifold was an amateur photographer. And on the evening of October 21st, 1978, he had just set up a tripod and a camera on the shoreline to take photographs of the sun setting over the water. One of these photographs shows a fast-moving object exiting the water near the lighthouse on Cape Otway. This photo was taken about 20 minutes before Valentich first radioed air traffic control about his encounter. You can see the photo on the web, but unfortunately the distance from the camera is such that you really can't make out any details at all. How do you like that story? Yeah... It's cool, except for that last bit about that photograph. I did go out there and look at it. Uh-huh. That motherfucker could have been anything from a bird to a beach ball to a real UAP. Yeah, but the part that seems strange to me, right, is, is nobody is questioning the fact that something is leaving the ocean. How many things come out of the damn ocean? Yeah. I just, I just hate pictures like that because I think they... 
hurt the argument for UFOs more than help it with their, you know, vagueness. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, but he wasn't taking a picture of the UFO. He was taking a picture of the sunset. Yeah. You know, so he, he didn't know it was going to be there, so you don't focus on it and that kind of thing. It was just blind, dumb chance that he got the photo. Yeah. But in any case, it's a pretty weird story, man. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, my complaints aside, I think oddities like these topics you've mentioned are uh, pretty cool to ponder. They add a little zest to the wearisomeness of everyday existence. Yeah, it's true, and, you know, if if we can lump more of these together, then I could talk for days. The real problem is, is that there's so many of these little things, right, but there's just not a lot of information, right? I mean, like, you couldn't write a book about this kid's disappearance because there's just not that much there, you know? That's why it's a mystery. Yep, and it's fun. It's a good world to live in, isn't it, man? Sometimes. What Do You Think About is co-written by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth. Our theme music, In Suspense, is provided by podsummit.com. And thank you to all of our listeners. Please, please, please take the time to rate our podcast on your favorite listening platform. And uh, drop us a line at wdouta at gmail.com. Or visit our Facebook page, anchor.fm slash wdouta, for updates on releases. Copyright 2022 by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth.